and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we come to you from The Forge, a former ironworks in the East End of London, where we're having a conversation that's a little bit different. I'm delighted to be speaking to a man who made it to the peak of a top-tier consultancy firm in a 20-year career, only to give it all up to dedicate himself to climate activism. Sam Baker is a former partner at Deloitte, who holds an MBA from London Business School, and who now supports charities centred around the Walk to Cop programme, a super organisation that highlights, supports and pressurises world leaders during the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as the Conference of the Parties, or COP. Last year, Sam made the walk from London to Glasgow for COP26, and this year he's organising a sophisticated virtual walk spanning the globe to COP27 in Egypt. Sam is a unique guest, straddling two worlds. He lived the life of blue-chip consultants and holds an LBS MBA, so he speaks the language of business and strategy. Sam is also a committed and thoughtful climate activist and a common set of skills and experiences which makes Sam a fascinating guest. During this very special conversation, we covered topics such as Sam's path and decision to leave a career that many others would envy, to dedicate himself full-time to climate activism, the experience of organising and participating in the walk to COP26, transition to COP27, both personally and how the world has changed in the past year, how someone finds their stride in climate activism, and what collaborative activism looks like. Sam has a drive and passion, which, when combined with a strategic mind and a fluency of language of business, gives a level of insight into the important world of climate activism that is extremely rare. This is a conversation that you just won't want to miss. So, Sam, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us today. Delighted to be here. Yeah. And I also believe that you're somewhere between what is like Hungary and Bulgaria right now. Oh, yeah. Sort <laughs> yeah, of. Sort of, sort of. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about your, your Walk to Cop initiative? Yes, yeah, certainly. So um, I took part in a walk to Glasgow last year, to COP26, and that was a physical walk. Um, and the, myself and then the other people who did it very much enjoyed it, and we thought we, in a very small way, we added some impact, so we thought we'd replicate it in some shape or form for COP27. Um, it's a lot further, obviously, from Glasgow to Sharm el-Sheikh than it is from London to Glasgow. So rather than make this about a small number of people physically walking, we've tried to create a sort of mass participation initiative which allows people to participate wherever they are, to walk, to feel like they're part of sort of collective, you know, walking from north to south to COP27, but actually they're walking wherever they are. And to keep that sense of a journey alive, we've got 12 town hall meetings. So we had the first one on the 22nd of September in Scotland, and then we've got the last one in Egypt on the 7th of November. And you're right, we had Hungary last week, and then we've got Bulgaria in two days' time on Thursday. And each time, the idea of those town halls, it is an exposition of local challenges, um, climate challenges, local responses, and it's an opportunity for us all to understand the similarities and differences, um, and, you know, how climate impact or climate change impacts these different um, society, different societies, different geographical settings, different economic strengths, um, and how they're responding. So they've been absolutely fascinating. They're going to be tremendous going forward as well. We've got, after Bulgaria, we've got Turkey, 
then we've got uh, Lebanon, then we've got um, Jordan. So very much looking forward to those. Um, and that gives us this sense of a journey from north to south, even if it's virtual. Fantastic, fantastic. And this is now your, your full-time, full-time job. So this year, this has been my full-time job, and it is a full-time job, so yeah, 24-7 more recently, but um, it was a bit, little bit softer to begin with, but yes, so the whole of this year has been planning for and now trying to execute this, this Walk to COP27. Fantastic. And uh, that brings us to you know, your background, you know, where, where you came from. Like, it's an absolutely remarkable story for someone who was at the, you know, the peak of a career that's many people would seriously envy you. And you decided to, to walk away from, you know, 26 years in a blue chip consultancy um, as a partner uh, to go and uh, come into climate activism. Could you tell us what, what, what brought that about? Yeah, so the, the sort of the passage, I suppose, was um, before I joined, but in fact, before I went to London Business School, which is, of course, where, where our connection comes from, I, I spent time. I spent six years in Tanzania, three years as a voluntary um, VSO, voluntary service overseas, um, and that gave me some exposure. Um, I didn't go there to sort of save the world, or you know, it was more adventure based. But it did open my eyes to extremes of different sort of levels of aspiration and opportunity, and it did remind me of my incredible privilege, I suppose, and it also allowed me to understand a little bit more about sort of NGOs and the UN system and various other th bits and pieces. So I sort of parked that really and, you know, went to Dar es Salaam, worked for Coopers, went to, did London Business School, which I very much enjoyed, then entered Deloitte and then spent 20, whatever it was, X years at Deloitte. And at Deloitte, most of the work in the first, um, really up until 2015, was focused on profit and growth for organisations, typically large organisations. Um, it might be a part of that organization or the entire organization. But the mantra was, was, you know, profitable growth, basically, in some shape or form. And it was a little bit frustrating to have that question set to you because the question back to the client would always be, um, what are the parameters within which you want me to work? So what are the non-negotiable elements of your business, your business model, your purpose, your impact, your whatever it is, that allows me to then answer that question without just starting again. Um, and it wasn't really a question they could ever answer back. And so, you know, implicitly you work within a sector, for instance, you rarely offer people you know, solutions outside of a sector because, um, you know, that would be too broad. Nobody actually says that, but it would be too broad. So, so that was always a sort of part of the questioning, I suppose, I had. Then on, in 2015, the SDGs were published. 2016, we had the Paris Agreement. And uh, I had a fantastic job with the GSMA, which is the Mobile Operator Association. It's a global association, very well funded because they have the Barcelona meeting, or they did pre-COVID, where um, they make large amounts of money. So it's a well-stocked association and does a fantastic job, I think, in many um, on, on for the global operator industry, particularly around, for instance, you know, education in Africa, for instance, as an example, would be one of their focuses, or digital education. So anyway, I had a year-long project with them, and um, it was all about trying to establish their purpose, so the purpose of the global mobile operators. And part of that purpose, we all agreed, should be the impact they have on the world. And we decided to then try and think what that impact was by taking the SDGs and working through the SDGs, the targets, so this, 
uh, whatever, 168 targets, 169 targets, I'm forgetting now, underneath the 17 SDGs, worked all the way through that framework and connected it to a large number of data points which the mobile industry have and collected at industry level across whatever it was, 70 countries or something. Amazing piece of work. Um, flawed, of course, to try and create that. But it just opened up the whole world of, you know, what is business actually trying to achieve what actually is a good thing in the world and what is a bad thing? How do you make those trade-offs? Because the SDGs are an incredible, um, you know, it's been called the strategy for the world or whatever else, an incredible thing for people to sign up to. Incredibly ambitious in retrospect particularly, but also fraught with conceptual difficulties. So, you know, how do you create a trade-off between, you know, one target or another or one goal and another? So it's not set up to really, it's very difficult to work with. But it's the best thing that we have, really, in order to think about all the different challenges, economic, social, environmental, in the world and what we should be aspiring to. Sure. And the, the SDGs are their sustainable development goals set up by the United Nations. Exactly. In 2015, signed by every you know, participating country in the United Nations um, to 2030. Um, but, you know, they, they haven't had a huge amount of traction with big organisations in the West. I think in the... In the uh, in countries which are more reliant on um, aid, it's a much more it's a much greater currency of conversation. I think in the current in in you know say the UK, you go to a big organisation, people are still confused about what the SDGs are. But notwithstanding that, it is an amazing framework. It was an amazing achievement to get them signed, and it enabled people like me to get in and try and think about what this actually meant for an industry or or a sector. So anyway, roll forward. So got into that, got into impact measurement and sort of, you know, what companies and organizations are supposed to do and then trying to think, think about the connection between the two. Then we got into trying to create a purpose business in Deloitte and a purpose for Deloitte as well. Um, and it was a fantastic time, really, really thoroughly enjoyable. But big business, um, you know, I don't think is quite ready. Well, sorry, it is not quite, is not ready to transform, them, tra transform themselves on the basis of the impact they have on the world. Um, and, you know, we've heard huge amounts about ESG and about impact measurement and management and monitoring and evaluation and et cetera, et cetera. But it is still elusive. It is still underinvested in. And, the, and I think the key thing that, that organisations, and I'm not just meaning in the private sector, fail to do is to own that impact and bring it into the heart of their business model and their strategy. There are some exceptions and they're normally smaller businesses, but I think that's generally the case. So I suppose over the following five, six years at Deloitte, I very much enjoyed my time trying to build this portfolio, this type of business. Um, I think at the same time though, there was a, yeah, that, you know, my, my job, my essential job was to transform, help organisations transform. And if they weren't prepared to transform and I wanted to continue on that path, then there was a natural schism from, you know, being a very successful, you know, financially, uh, you know, just financially remunerated and earning partner at Deloitte and somebody who was trying to create a change in and around impact against a market which didn't really want to, you know, accede to it. So I think inevitably, and you can see it in many other people's careers as well, you know, you start to, if you're searching for how you're trying to have impact, you're, you, you're not best placed to sit in a very large, hard-driving organisation with a very traditional set of metrics which require full-time commitment and concentration. And um, 
yeah, and so I think the space, the breadth, the time, the opportunity to think and experiment, um, you know, it's not fair to do that in an organisation where you're expected to do something else. But uh, there was like a clear opportunity in there. You were advising people um, on their ESG goals, on their environmental goals, on their sustainability goals. So you had a chance to, even if you're moving one of these behemoths a couple of degrees to the left or right, that's you can still make a pretty material impact. Uh, what made you decide to leave like the big brand and the big possibilities of making impacts on big firms to to go out and and become a you know, full time dedicated activist? Um, so, so I think, I mean, two things, demand and supply, if you like, or both sides of the coin. So I think on my side, um, it's too slow. So I, I interviewed 450 businesses in one of the last projects I did at Deloitte around their climate narrative. And, um, you know, what we did is we had a structured way of asking the questions. We interviewed this large number of organizations. We um, put it on an attributed basis on a database and opened it up free to everybody. Anybody could access it. We wrote a couple of reports. And on the one hand, it was fantastic because there was an enthusiasm and a passion and an excitement about what they were doing, the people that we spoke to, which could be strategy, uh, investor relations, or, uh, you know, obviously sustainability or perhaps a special climate unit. But when you stood back from it, you realised what a small proportion, whichever way you want to express that, be it in terms of activity or influence or anything else, what a small proportion of the overall business that was. And so, so it just reinforced this idea that actually business, you know, we have a system which expects it's the units within the system operate in a certain way. And those businesses do, yeah? And ex implicitly or explicitly, they operate in a certain way. And working within those businesses, particularly big businesses, to try and make incremental change just didn't feel sufficient to me, did not feel sufficient. So so from my side, that was a situation. I think from the Deloitte side, I think it was obvious, it's like, you know, are you going to advise CXOs and do transformation or not? And, and I think, in my, my conclusion, it was very difficult to do that. So I think there was both push and pull, around and you know changing effectively what I've done and where I've found myself so and I'm still not I still don't know where the best place to apply myself is and so I've done this walk to COP26 I've done these this work with Deloitte I've now doing walk to COP27 to mobilize and and create mass participation in huge numbers of conversations and I'm searching for the next piece and so but, but I'm, I'm relishing the opportunity to think and search and try and find the place to make the big impact as opposed to be overtaken by the local demands of any particular organisation. Looking back in your time at uh, Deloitte, what are you most proud of? So, I mean, the various projects, I think, and, and certainly the work at the GSMA was most... Um, transformational for me so whether or not I was proud of that is a different question but you know the work that we did together with the team there was 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 amazing we did something called uh, digital with purpose with an organization called global enabling sustainability initiative which is a collection of techno um, telcos and technology companies did that in 2019 that is now been called a movement so the digital with purpose movement so um proud of that we did some very interesting internal work around purpose at Deloitte as well so all, all of these things of I can look back and, and maybe pride is the wrong word but but feel yeah those were good things to do we learned a lot we pushed ourselves we explored we learned we um and we inspired each other and but I think the proof of the pudding there is that 
you know, there are a number of people that obviously I'm still in contact with and or people sort of, you know, first, second, third, fourth outer circle from exactly from the people I talk to every day. And they know what I stand for. I know, you know, what they stand for. And I feel that that relationship was forged through the work that we did together. And I think that is probably what I'm most proud of. Kind of moving on from impacts you had at uh, Deloitte to impacts you've been having more recently. Um, so, can we talk about uh, walk to COP twenty six? Like what you learned, what you what you what you gathered from it? Yeah. So, so the walk to COP twenty six was. Um, I mean, first of all, we felt it would be a super interesting thing for us, the participants, to walk from you know for twenty six days for twenty miles a day. We thought that'd be great. Step away from a corporate context. Step away from a desk and speak to people about climate change and listen, more importantly, actually, than, than speaking. So I think that was very attractive. So you've got something uh, very local to sort of do to keep you busy, which is, you know, to put one step in front of another and feel like you're making some sort of progress in some bizarre way. But really, it's to try and enable you to, to step away from an institution, to recognise how institutionalised your thinking might have become, and to begin to feel and and hear and understand what different types of people in different walks of life say about climate change particularly so that was one thing i think the second thing was um and that, and that wasn't necessarily going to have an impact it was it was about more of an impact on us perhaps than anybody else but the second bit was what we wanted to do was to create rather like we haven't got 27 create town halls so bring people together and this was to bring together business um, and not-for-profits and students from universities or schools um, and local authorities. So bring them all together in a series of town halls on the way up. So we had about eight town halls on the way up. And I knew from the 450 interview exercise I mentioned that, you know, everybody talks about collaboration. Well, certainly all the corporates talk about collaboration. You know, it's not something we can do alone. We've got to work together. Um, you know, co proper collaboration for big business is very difficult. It, it's, you know, fraught with challenge and conflict and one of the things my observations was you know collaboration around climate change is of course not just with other people in your sector or somebody up and down your value chain it's actually with the community it's actually with government it's actually with you know you've got to get everybody to play together so that's even more difficult so those town halls in a very small way the idea was to bring together those different constituencies in a location get them talking get them you know in some way to understand and know each other so yeah those i think they created impact in a in some way so um either because people met each other they didn't know or um i remember in moffat in scotland they said that was the best you know discussion that the town had had on um on the environment more broadly and we were just that's fantastic i love it it's great bringing people together creating those connections getting people to learn from each other these were the, the small ways that we made impact and and that's the way that we've shaped and designed water got 27 Brilliant, yeah. And it's another um, town hall kind of structured um, uh, walk to COP, uh, but virtually done. Um, how did you find the bridge between kind of the physical to the to technical? Like, are you are you a technical person? How did you how did you manage to overcome that gap? Yeah, so I um, so I started at, at Accenture. I did three years at Accenture, Anderson Consulting, as it was, and I was a Cobalt programmer for a while, and I didn't know how to use a keyboard, and I'm, I'm not sure I still do. So I would not call myself a technical person. However, I do recognize the incredible benefits from the reach, the efficiency, the effectiveness of all these things that we've been gifted with. So as long as you've got your broadband, you know, 
the you know whether it's a zoom or a team school or something like that or you know any of the social media platforms or getting a website up and running or pinging out an email to 100 people i mean it's just incredible what you can do um yeah so i would say i'm not you know i'm not not really technical i'm a user not not a real techie but um, I do appreciate the incredible productivity and things that you can do using that. Sure, but one of the reasons why we always do these uh, conversations in person is that the, well, find there's a there's a different energy, there's a different type of connection and conversations you can have that's really difficult to have down on screen. Um, have you found the interactions within your physical town halls and the virtual town halls have been as productive? So I think that the the thing I'm missing from COP26 is we. You know, we had this this physical, personal mission of trying to get from London to Glasgow. And that, you know, you were tired at times and you were stressed and you had to get to the next place and you got shin splints and you... So it just, it, it, it became so, um, yeah, it was emotional, it was physical, it was, it, you know, it was sort of everything, right? Whereas, you know, if you are effectively orchestrating this thing from behind a computer screen, it does feel different, personally. Notwithstanding that, you know, you know, if I can set up a working group in, say, Lebanon or Jordan and have, you know, 20 to 30 different organisers represented who I've never met before, you do establish, you know, good relationships and good links and you do understand a little bit about the country and the personal situations that people are in. So it is a gift, but it, you're right, there's a, a physical dimension which is uh, um, difficult to replicate or you can't replicate. And you set up kind of four very clear objectives um, for, your, for your walk to COP. Would you like to, to talk, like, obviously, no, the, the net zero is, is the one that everyone will, will, will know about. But uh, what about uh, the, other, the other three? Would you care to... Yeah, so, the, so the, way we, the way we talk about it is saying we are um, really trying to catalyse climate action. Um, and we're catalyzing climate action through three different ways in order, and, and we, we define climate action in, for four outcomes. So the three ways are to create an opportunity to learn, is the first, and that's for ourselves, for everybody else as well. Um, the second is then to forge solidarity, so make people feel like they're in this together, so we have the courage to act, um, and act in awareness of, of everybody around us. And then the third is connections, to allow people to make connections, be they, you know, Somebody does passive house, speaking to somebody who does wood design or something in Belgium and they happen to be in the same village. You know, brilliant. That's a connection made. Bang. Um, so the third is connections. So the way we define climate action is in terms of four outcomes. And the first outcome, as you said, is decarbonisation or, or, you know, aligning to net zero or the race to zero, which is the uh, climate champions version of that. Um, and so that can be, you know, many of us are very familiar with that. Um you know, it's a reduction in man-made emissions and, you know, huge amounts of work doing about what net zero really means and what the level of emissions reduction should be, either at a national level or an organisational level, um, and, and indeed where those emissions come from, obviously. So the emissions piece is is also known as sort of, you know, mitigation. That that piece is is relatively well understood, I think, by many in, in this sphere. The second one, resilience. So resilience is really the flip side of adaptation. So can we adapt or can we be resilient in the face of the climate, the challenges from climate change that, that we foresee or, or are coming upon us? Um, and this is more difficult to conceptualize and to define because, for instance, one person's resilience might be somebody else's lack of resilience. You, you might actually improve your resilience at the cost of somebody else's in theory, whereas for emissions... 
you know, if you reduce your emissions, it's, it's good for everybody. So um, conceptually, it's a little bit more difficult to, to understand. And also you've got to think about, you know, how do you, what is your baseline of resilience? Is it the way you currently live, operate and act, and you're trying to protect that? Or is it the way that you did it five or 10 years ago or whatever? So it is a more difficult topic. The principle is very clear, which is basically we've got to withstand the challenges we know are going to happen because we know um, you know the, con the the climate is going to continue to heat up, whatever we do now, um, and we know the extreme weather events will increase, whatever we do, and the you know terrible impacts of desertification and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, are going to be upon us, and so we know we need to prepare. The IPWC reports are very clear on that, um, and resilience is that act of preparation, really, or, or, or sorry, the outcome of that preparation, both for societies and the environment. So really, really important. I think everybody recognises that's been slightly deprioritised compared to, to mitigation for lots of reasons, but it's very much back on the table. And I think not least because we are all beginning to suffer now, every economy, every geography, whereas perhaps in the past it was the poorer economies, not the richer economies who were suffering. And it was a little bit easier to think, well, it's a shame, but it's not really our issue. So the third one is justice. So uh, justice is, um, again, is quite difficult to, um, to put in a little box, but you know, at the highest level, the concept, you know, there's a number of different elements to justice, which is voice. So are we, allowing, uh, um, are we allowing everybody to have a voice in how we construct the future in the face of climate change? Um, so I think that is one very, very important part of justice and being inclusive. There is a second part of justice, which is sort of saying, well, whose fault is it? And therefore, who has to do something about this? So I think that's the second very important part that obviously COP27 will be opening up and, and, and examining. Um, and then I think that the sort of the third bit of justice, I suppose, is really similar to the first bit, but the SDGs had the same concept, which is try to leave nobody behind. So, um, you know, can we really say that we have operated with justice if a proportion of society, an individual, not just doesn't have a, you know, they might not have a voice necessarily, which I hope they will do, but we can't leave them behind. So we have to incorporate everybody. So justice is multifaceted, but I would say probably point to those three things as the most important. Um, and then the final one is circularity, which is really just saying, you know, we don't want to construct a world, we don't want to address you know, anthropogenic climate change in a whatever 10 to 20 year time frame, which then results in a system and a set of organizations which create additional massive environmental and societal issues. And so I think the concept of circularity, the concept of, of being relatively closed loop, of not being a, of, of thinking very hard about what comes in, how you manage it, um, and managing what comes out and making sure that to the extent possible that it's sort of closed loop, I think is a very powerful concept and helps us to try and think in a truly sustainable way going forward. So moving back to COPs, uh, for right or for wrong, uh, the COPs have tended to have evolved into dominating the conversation on climate and dominating the conversation on um, how organisations and how governments and how people you know, think about the, the climate process. What's your view on on the role COPs play and how it's evolved over recent years? So, um, you know, I explained that 2015 was when I got into the Sustainable Development Goals. I got into climate change in a much sort of in a dedicated way, really, only three years ago. So I'm not a veteran COP watch or COP attender. Um, 
which actually is very interesting for me because I can observe and listen to people who have been. And, and the first observation is this, you know, this is the 27th, it's 28th year because we missed one with COVID. And it's unbelievable that we've had, co- you know, this has been so known about, so important that there has been a, an, you know, all country, UN driven conference of the parties every year to try and tackle climate change. And yet, at, you know, for me, even when I got into the SDGs, I only saw climate change as one of many challenges. I didn't see it as, I mean, in fact, I fiercely defended the fact that there was no prioritization within the SDGs. It's only latterly when, you know, my eyes are being awakened by the, largely through the IPWC reports, but also many, many other sources, is the, you know, the impending horror, or in fact, the, the visible horror in some some areas, but also the impending horror that, that we need to try and avoid. Um, and so one thing, one observation obviously is, is, is staggering to me to fi- figure out where was I? What was I doing? I was head down, you know, looking after myself, not looking after anybody else during that period when all these things were happening. So that, that's, that's one thing. I think the second thing is for people who, like me, who are sort of lay people when it comes to COP, um, you know, they're quite difficult to, to unpick. I think sort of there's quite a lot of good media coverage over on COP26, which I think helps explain it and open it up. But it's quite difficult to unpick, to understand. It's quite technical. Um, you know, there's sort of technical forums, there's technical speak, there's technical language. And and I think I felt and I heard from others that COP26 was a reasonable bridge, perhaps between, um, you know, more technical technically presented processes and outcomes from previous cops perhaps and something which was more of the people um so so i think that's a very good thing because i think you know every you you need things in a calendar to break up um you know for everybody to focus on it is global you have got all the countries there there's an opportunity for it to be a massive focus for everybody um, and use it as a time in the calendar to put pressure on governments, on business, and on everybody else to step up. You know, you don't want a rolling mall of targets and commitments and, you know, piecemeal reporting, etc. You do want a bit of a calendar, I think, to run these things. So I think, from my perspective, it's incredibly useful as something that we can all rally around. But we do need to understand it better. So with COP26, and we were visiting schools and to, at the beginning of the journey in England. So it could have been because it was the beginning of the journey or it could be because it was in England. For, you know, less students had heard of or understood what it was about. And as you got closer to Scotland, you know, all the hands were going up and people could talk about it and say what it was. It's very powerful. If everybody knows about this, um, you know, and they're engaging in some shape or form, it's potentially very powerful. So, so I think, you know, we have something that we need to defend. We all need to get you know, to participate in, even if we're not asked to. Um, And it's a great opportunity to massively leverage what's been done before um, to try and change the outcomes to to be more positive, more dramatic, more transformational in the shorter term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it felt like um, COP26 was, at least in the build-up, was set up to be another monumental, you know, occasion, like, you know, another another rerun of Paris, which was at the last one where people thought, my goodness, we've made some serious progress here. Um, in your work with um, Walk to COP27, was, is that just, just my perspective on it? Because, you know, being a kind of UK, Ireland based, and like you get to, you hear all of the, the media 
um, kerfuffle in the run-up to to a, a UK-based, uh, uh, Scotland-based uh, cup, or is it is there a similar level of of build-up momentum uh, as you see in in, in Egypt and um, outside yeah. of the UK? Yeah, so I, I think so. I was in Deloitte, you know, when we were warming up to to cop, um, and obviously it was it was pushed back a year because of COVID, um, and actually I was surprised. So there was a valiant, you know, monumental efforts by many, many people really to create this big thing around COP. But it was also late and it was also fragmented. And it was almost not the thing that it was. I mean, very, very close to it. And part of that, I guess, was COVID and the uncertainty. Um, But it was also because, you know, it is an intensely political forum. Things are moving quickly. And, you know, you can feel everybody looking at everybody else sort of wondering, you know, who's going to Who's going to be there? You know, how much? How seriously are they going to take it? What do we need to do as opposed to what should we do? So, so I think yes, I do think COP twenty six was a big thing, particularly for us. Um, obviously, huge numbers of people went, whether they were invited or not, which was fantastic. Um, it was a, it was the f- a fifth year, uh, you know, since since Paris, even though it was a sixth year, um, and the expectation was the NDC, so the nationally defined contributions would all be pulled out and polished and represented, and they would be in line with the Paris Agreement, which of course they weren't. Um, so for lots of reasons, it was always going to be sort of quite a big thing, and I suppose you know the host country has resources and put some of those resources to play. In for instance, the the climate champions. I think when we roll forward to to this year. Um, I have been, must have been a little bit disappointed from conversations with certainly with big business who are, I think, again, you know, wondering what sh- what other people are going to do and therefore what they need to do as opposed to what they should do and how far they step forward. And people are also talking about sort of COP28, um, which will be in the UAE and sort of being the excitement that they're, they're, they're having because it's in the UAE as opposed to perhaps this one. And so... Um, I think people have also talked about it being difficult to get to, um, the local constraints perhaps on the types of organisation who are probably the noisiest at COP, so for instance some of the NGOs, um, the difficult to accredit, you know, so to get the number of people accredited. So I've heard, you know, that they're positive things and people really want, you know, lots of people wanting it to be a massive success, but I've also heard a combination of sort of deprioritization and logistical challenge and of course the BBC um, you know to have got a number of different sort of bits of the narrative neither of which are sort of wholly uplifting and promoting this as a as a really important meeting and so I have been a little bit disappointed in how it's been categorized and talked about in many quarters um, but I really do wish them all the very best and I'm sure huge amounts of effort are going in to, to make it as successful as it can be. Mm, absolutely um, I know it was it was an emotional time at, at COP26 and he talked about, you know, your own journey getting up there. But uh, in the relatively short aftermath afterwards, you came out and you, you said some very, you know, yeah, you thought it was uh, a disgrace and it should provoke, uh, you know, outrage. Is that still, on reflection, do you still, still do you still feel that way or lost yeah, opportunity? I think, I think, again, I go back to being a lay person. It is, it is you know, you're comparing the challenge and the challenge which is running away with us to what's coming out of the meeting. And I think, you know, people who follow COP and the people who are sort of deeply into the politics of it all, you know, they feel sort of, 
you know, but they're over here feeling like an incremental step or whatever is a good thing, where the rest of us are looking at the issue and the challenge here and sort of saying, well, it doesn't really matter what's gone before. It just, it's not fit for purpose. And I think that's where the frustration came from. So as an example, you know, the emotion and the sense of success and unanimity and consensus that came out of the Paris Agreement, not, not that I was really any, in any way part of that at the time, but I am a, um, I'm a fanboy of... Um, Christiana Figueres, for one, and so, you know, listen to a lot of her podcasts. But, you know, that, that sense of achievement, and yet here we are six years later, and we've come out with a series of a set of national plans which keep us to 2.4 degrees. Um, that was my understanding. I think there was a bit of a range, but 2.4 degrees was the lower end of the range, as opposed to the 2 or hopefully 1.5 that the Paris Agreement came with. So that in itself is so disappointing. And then when the news is, uh, you know, in large part around the use of language and whether, you know, so the, the success of having coal actually cited in the, in the final document, you know, I mean, for people, who, again, who aren't, haven't been part of those 26 sessions, it's, it's, there's such a gap between that and the reality of what's happening and what needs to be done. That's where that frustration and disappointment and anger came from and you know and it's still there but I, I feel I don't know I feel more part of it now as in more responsible and um, you know I don't feel I can throw stones from outside I feel I'm stuck I'm part of the issue not not almost part of the solution I desperately want to be part of the solution so I feel compromised in how I think about it because I recognise I'm part of the, or have been part of the challenge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, one party seemed to think that uh, that that the cops play an important role in keeping everybody focused, but on the other um, hand, you said that you don't think that they're really fit for purpose and moving at the pace you, we need to. What changes would you make? How would you, if you had a magic wand, how would you how would you you make that the process better? So I, I you know, I'm not. Um, well suited to sort of comment on how they're organized exactly in the sort of the process of reaching agreements or otherwise. Um, but I guess it, one thing I'd ask for for the magic one would be to have heads of state at those meetings. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I think I understand sometimes some of them have been there. Obviously, Boris Johnson at the time was, it was in Glasgow. Um, I think he was prime minister then. But anyway, so, um, you know, so that heads, having heads of state you know, as a mark of, of huge importance, um, I think that would make a, a big difference. Again, you seem to um, be kind of touching on the kind of the momentum issues here as well. Um, given kind of current events and recent events, uh, do you see that COP is is less in the headlines because people have got other priorities or...? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think climate change um, as a topic has, has lost momentum. So I think, you know, coming out of... Whatever anybody thought about, you know, the outcomes of COP26, certainly in our world anyway here, you know, it had just, in, from the media sort of footage and an interest and an understand general public awareness, was massive. And you read stats in the US as well, where you've got, you know, 80% of people think it should be a policy priority, regardless of whether Democrat or Republican. So, you know, that, that sense of people being aware and understanding, which is a precursor to action, is highly reassuring and exciting and inspiring. But obviously we've then had, 
you know, we've come out of COVID, we've seen the supply chain challenges from COVID, we would have seen that anyway, and inflation and cost of living challenges, overlaid with the horror of the war, but then the impact of the war as well in terms of, again, energy prices feeding through into cost of living. Um, and, and then energy security resulting from, from, from that as well. And I think those things have sort of, yeah, definitely, without a doubt, conspired to change geopolitics and, and nationally, you know, and national priorities, and, and not just in the UK, but in the UK we can see it. We can see energy security has, has resulted in talk about, you know, lots of oil and gas licenses and fracking. Um, you know, we've, we've had people in government talking about, um, you know, the fact they can't afford to address some of our net zero commitments this year or next year. I mean, it, the language is extraordinary. You can't afford to do something which is going to trash <laughs> the next generation and the environment and society as we know it. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary talk. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, and so I think that, and lots of the countries, particularly through these town halls that we've been doing, you know, you can hear and, and see similar levels of concern reflected. I mean, some countries are getting, I mean, we've, I think we've got something like 7% of our natural gas comes from Russia, something like that, I think. And, and, you know, some of the countries in the town halls are having, you know, 10 times that. So, so big, big challenges and local priorities. And then the geopolitical point is, you know, one of the unexpected and exciting things that happened at COP26 was this sort of China-US, you know, bilateral agreement. Um, and that, you know, disappeared in a puff of smoke because of the geopolitical challenges created through the, the war in Ukraine. So um, I think lots of things obviously have been going on, all of them taking or sucking away energy, some of them creating direct counter, you know, activity, momentum and narrative against, you know, against climate change. There has been a little bit which has helped and obviously energy security, in part, in theory, you know, if you do have a strong renewables, you know, investment in renewables in your country, then that is a way to get, um, you know, energy security. So I think in some quarters, certainly, that investment in renewables is happening. It's just very likely to be happening at the same time as prolonging coal, prolonging nuclear, um, and then also obviously, you know, prolonging oil and gas of some shape or form. And just before I ask the next question, would you consider yourself an activist? So I, I've got huge respect for what I would deem almost sort of proper activists. And I think a proper activist, in my mind still, so, so you know, again, I'm very young, naive and new to this, to, to this whole area. But the, you know, I consider the, the proper activist is almost somebody who is um, fierce and courageous in, in, the, in the face of disapproval from, from the norm, almost by definition. So they are going out on, on a limb, they're isolating themselves, they are absolutely sure of their convictions, and they're helping move the center by extreme action, right? I'm not that, I'm not that person. So, so my activism is, I would like to call myself a climate activist, but there's a couple of things that's hold me back. Well, well one is I don't want to um, take away from the people I would consider truly courageous in this in this space. And I would include people like Christiana Figueres as well in that, by the way. So 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 one is I don't want to take away from the people like that. I am still exploring how to make the best impact. And I think when I do and when I lock into that, I'll be able to call myself an activist with more confidence. Um 
because I think you need, you know, mega conviction, not just about the issue you're addressing, but how you're addressing it as well. And I've been a strategy consultant for 30 years. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about all the options, maybe too much. And so, so I need to lock into how I actually deliver the impact as opposed to, you know, spreading myself a bit thin. So that's one thing. And the second thing, you have to make some difficult choices if you're going to be an activist. So, so you are going against the grain. You're going against that big middle ground of people who have an accepted way of thinking about things and doing things. And that will make you unpopular. That requires courage. And once again, I think I've sort of managed the conversation rather than necessarily found my niche or found my place where I can express what I really believe and think needs to happen recognizing though that this will mean a very significant impact on the status quo and the incumbents which in itself will then become very unpopular yeah well if it's if it's popular there's no need for activists is there um what is the role of the activist right now in the in this world and keeping um, climate on the agenda and keeping the us, us you know, to hopefully somewhere beneath two degrees Assuming that most of us are aware in some shape or form uh, in the UK and particularly after COP26, you know, reason, we might consider ourselves reasonably opinionated about what's happening and climate change and the desire to change. The issue we've all got is the dissonance between that and today and tomorrow and, you know, buying your coffee and, you know, sitting down and turning on your computer and wondering what your kids are doing or whatever else, you know. And it, this is so normal and mundane and everyday and what we've always done and this challenges that in a huge way, which says, actually, it's not going to continue like that. It's going to differ. And we're all struggling, I think, or many of us are struggling to bridge that gap and say, well, if I know this, and I do know this actually now, I can't, how do I reconcile this with that? And I think the activist is just, and, and the trouble is, is one of the ways we do do that or not quite reconcile, but one of the ways we live with that dissonance is to ignore it. So we carry on living in this world and just pip, you know, pop into this every so often so we sort of make ourselves feel good and, not, and don't look stupid in front of people. And I think the activist's job is to take that and just ram it into this and say, guys, stop it. You know, you're pretending everything is normal and it's not. You know, you're, you're ignorant, you're not opening your eyes, you're being naive and we're going to take this and we're going to ram that into your world here and we're going to disrupt and we're going to try and make everybody wake up, understand we've got this huge challenge and move together to change things for the better. I think that's the role of the activist. All right, so one of the major themes in um, uh, COP coming up in Egypt um, is reparations, you know, and it's, um, it, that is a concept that people may know in different concepts, but in the climate world, um, it may not be familiar to people. So could you uh, could describe what reparations means to, like, to a delegate at, uh, at COP? Yeah, so... Um, I think that the so the sort of the framing of it, I think, is typically loss and damage, in, uh, as far as I understand, in the in the COP world. Um, but the concept is is broadly the same, and it goes back to what we were saying about justice, which is, um, you know, the, there has been, it's been well understood for a long time that the people creating climate change or the societies creating climate change who have seen many benefits from the way that they've done that in terms of standards of living, etc are not the ones who have then suffered the greatest impact of floods, um, you know, rising seawater desertification, et cetera, et cetera. And so loss and damage slash reparations is a really about trying to think of a framework which allows um, 
you know, some form of of payment or help or assistance yeah, from the people who created the challenge and issue to the people who are then suffering from it. So in Pakistan, the recent floods in Pakistan, I saw a number, I think it was it was issued by Pakistan, who said that, you know, we will need, um, I think it was, I don't know, 30 to 40 billion to just to get back to where they were before the floods, you know, presuming, of course, that, you know, the water subsided and everything else. That would be a third of the amount of money that was agreed from sort of, if you like, the, you know, the richer countries to the poorer countries as part of the cop payment of the 100 billion. So clearly that 100 billion is completely inadequate. If one country with one weather event can be taking a third of it, and by the way, it's not fully paid anyway, the 100 billion. But so it is very clear that somehow countries need to come together, not just to, you know, because you could think of it and say, you know, this isn't about whose fault it is and, and you know, who should get the money. It could, we could just start off and say, well, actually, obviously, we need some form of insurance. We don't know where the biggest challenges are going to hit. So wouldn't it be sensible to pool, you know, to create a massive, great insurance fund, pool, your, pool all your money, and then pay it out when, when it's required and when it's needed? So at one level, you know, you could think of it like that. But the second level then is if there is asymmetry between who has the money and where the challenges hit, there obviously has to be a set of rules around this to make sure that not least because the people who have the money are typically the people who created the emissions in the past and created this historic challenge, set of rules which makes sure that this, these underlying principles of justice, fairness, equity are put in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you will have people coming out and saying, well, we can't afford this now. Look how difficult our, our, our own lives are, how our, our energy cut prices have gone up. Um, you know, we should be looking after our own populations first. Um, how would you respond? So I think there's, there's a number of ways to respond. And we've had some really interesting people sort of responding to that in the different town halls. So, you know, we have, we didn't do this in COP26, but we, the faith groups, were, I th- we thought were pretty, pretty well organised at COP26. And so we've sought them out for COP27 for this initiative. So we had somebody come f- from Green Faith talking at one of the town halls. And she was very clear, as you would expect her to be, on the moral principles that, that should underpin this. So for her, you know, this is a moral priority um, that's wholly in line with, um, you know, the major religions and how they think about, you know, caring for each other in society. Um, and therefore, it's a prerequisite to, to living the life you want to lead as a, you know, Christian or a Muslim or whatever else. Right? So that was one view. Now, you know, that's not really, that doesn't really go down in politics in the UK, that's for sure, for, for, for another reason. But then, of course, there's lots of self-interest here as well. And perhaps one of the more obvious ways of, of thinking about self-interest is through immigration. So the UK seemed to be obsessed with immigration. Arguably, that's exactly why Brexit happened. There, there is a, I think there's an ongoing, you know, debate by the people in the know about whether or not the Syria was really tipped over the edge by climate change. But obviously that created a massive exodus and a huge number of immigrants into Europe. And I think everybody recognises that if climate change continues relatively unchecked, as it is at the moment, that will be nothing compared to the mass migration that we'll face and have to manage. So you can look at it in a number of different ways, but it is not an an issue that you can isolate to a country, to a particular landmass, to a location. 
you know, we've spent however many decades it is driving globalization, particularly in the private sector. Um, what do we think is going to happen to our global supply chains? Or what, what can we see happening to our global supply chains, our networks, our security? I mean, it's a bit clouded at the moment because of COVID and clouded because of the war in Ukraine. But even without that, climate change is, you know, things like, um, you know, the Rhine in Germany, where, you know, there are months in the year where you can't sort of deliver or, or, or collect things, you know, up or down streams. So, you know, that supply chain is going to impact all of us. So the way of life that we have established... Um, outside of our national is dependent on what's happening outside our national boundaries increasingly so of course you know the more that people suffer and uh, you know floods or hurricane in or whatever else it is within your national boundaries that is going to create focus narrative dialogue argumentation around putting money to play there but it cannot be at the expense of a more cohesive and a more communal response to challenges elsewhere, which ultimately we're all dependent on. So it's uh, clear you're a firm believer in direct action, uh, be it from an individual or from a kind of uh, a corporate basis. Uh, you also believe that um, we're running out of time, and things are, you know, things things are going uh, not going quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you choose 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 walking particularly? Was it was there something kind of um, um, philosophical about it or like is walking just always simply has been it's always been an important part of your life so I, th- I think that you know challenges and if you like mini adventures have been a part of my life right so um and i think the idea of, of a a long walk i never really done i mean i've walked up mountains and things but i never really walked a long walk before so that in itself was appealing um but i think that the the hope was it would give us an opportunity to engage with people in a different way at a slower pace than, you know, sitting behind a screen, bashing away and, and doing your job. That was that was the real hope. That's really why we did it. So we've all got choices about, you know, once we want to engage in an issue, and particularly this issue, you know, we've got many choices on how we do that. And it requires a bit of thinking to work through what you want to do, what you're good at, what you've got, you know, opportunity to do. And so I think that was also in the back of my mind is to have an opportunity not just to engage with nature, have a bit of an adventure, engage with lots of different people from different walks of life all around climate change, but also to try and think through the choices that I wanted to make going forward in my life. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of exercise as a, as a way of whether it's walking or anything else just as a way of helping you, you know, think through some of those choices. So, you know, I wouldn't, we did meet some incredible proper walkers. So I would say one was a guy called Push Krishnamurthy. So he, um, he is um, English, long-term Oxford worker, um, originally Indian, and uh, is a phenomenal, I don't know, 71 I think he is, and he's done a lot of sort of Gandhi-style walks um, in India um, with free trade sort of people and also with Oxfam and, and others in the UK. So we met people like that who were like, hats off, you're a proper walker. We're just, we are tourists. But um, there's something very compelling about it, something very compelling. Um, yeah, maybe it's the pace, maybe it's the sort of the slow level of activity, maybe it's the sense as well of, you know, a journey you do feel it's, you know, you are going somewhere, even if you're not really, you know, you, you question about the impact you're having, but you are actually feeling in some shape or form that you're making some progress. And that, that helped as well. 
Interesting, yeah. I was speaking of Gandhi. Gandhi, Tolstoy, Kumar have all, like many other activists, have all drawn a kind of straight line between pace of life and injustice. Um, was there something to that, to the to the choosing a slower pace to to combat injustice, which is you know, two two themes we've been coming up with today? Yeah, so I, I think the you know I have spent most of my life doing stuff, um, doing lots of stuff, and being massively busy, and for a long time, you know, probably only until you know I don't know the last couple of years it never occurred to me that I might have actually been having a negative impact on the world. Yeah, I thought maybe, you know, not that some of the things I did didn't have a negative impact, but in total, if you netted it off, you might be having a negative impact. In my back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'm feeding my kids, I'm, you know, doing what I've told to, I'm not breaking the law, or not, not every day, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know, that, you didn't have to think, overthink, you know, the impact you're having. And of course now, we begin to realize that the system that we've been promoting and working in has indeed created massive challenges for future generations. And that is a very, very sobering thought. And what it starts to say to me is that now that story about going slow, those you said, those, those amazing, those, those names have, have all sort of agreed upon, you can begin to understand it because the busier you are, the more stuff you do, the less opportunity you have to step back and say, well, actually, is what I'm doing, what, what am I actually trying to achieve? Okay, I might have made money. I might have got promotion. I might have, you know, sorted out, you know, the security and inverted commas of my child. But have you really, what, what is it actually you're trying to do? And what is the negative impact you're doing? So who are you supporting by doing what you're doing? What business practice or approach to the world are you supporting tacitly, implicitly? And so all of those things now speak very significantly to me. And it's quite challenging because you think, my God, maybe the last 30 years I did actually do lots and lots. Of, in fact, in totality, maybe it was an incredibly negative thing, impact I had on, on the world. Not sure. But, but, you know, instinctively I'm thinking, well, yeah, it probably there was a lot of contribution to all the environmental and social issues that we see at the moment. I just, not just by being blind, but by actively supporting, you know, the system and the organizations and everything else, which is, has brought us to where we are. So I think by slowing down, you're going to be more thoughtful by slowing down. I think there's less chance of losing yourself in a sort of small Maybe that's the same as being more thoughtful, but losing yourself in a sm without context in a small part of a company, organization, you know, set of rules that somebody else has. Yeah, there's clearly uh, a conflict between that, though, between the urgent need for action and the need to not be not be busy fool, like the, to need to, to be to be sitting back, taking the time that's that's required to be strategic, to think about how you're best using your time, and then moving forward. That's that seems to be the the the, the point that you're at now. Is that is that correct? Yeah, and there is that is difficult because I think on the one hand, you know, if we all slowed down, and we all questioned the choices and why we were trying to, you know, I don't know, put more money in our pocket or whatever else we're trying to do. Then, then I think there's an opportunity for that slowing down in itself to have a very powerful impact on what we're trying to achieve. Um, that's one thing. But clearly we're not in that position at the moment. And people are holding on to this because that's what they know. 
And, you know, there's a terror in giving up something without knowing what you're going to get in return or what's going to happen. And so there is a requirement for people to be dedicated and committed and work hard or whatever in order to try and address, the, you know, the challenges that we face. So so I agree. It's, it's, it's difficult because you almost know, you know what, you know perhaps some elements of how you should live if you want to live in harmony with the world, etc., but at the same time, you want everybody to do that, not just you. And so do you then try and emulate that as the best way of getting other people to follow you? Or do you have to emulate them in their intensity and their commitment and everything else to try and change their minds to get us all living in the right way as we go forward? Don't know. Hmm. Don't know. No, <clears throat> extremely difficult, right? And it seems, it appears to me, uh, it absolutely resonates with me, that the closer you are to these issues, uh, the more um, the more emotionally attached you are to them, and the more difficult it becomes. Like if you're just living living in your bubble and just just earning and getting promotions or whatever else, and these issues aren't part of it, you're less likely to feel the pressure of of the you know the impending crisis. But the the further along that 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 trajectory you are from being in your bubble to being you know an entire activist, the more likely you are to feel kind of burnt out and crushed and probably, you know with all the, the weight of weight of the world on your shoulders on it hmm. what advice would, would you give to people who are moving up up the spectrum as to how to how to best deal with the the increasing level of pressures you're going to be putting on your shoulders so i think a couple of things i think one is you know th this challenge is on us and it's not going to go away and so i think you know to embrace it not maybe not wholly but it, to embrace it and to, to feel your at least thinking or trying to address it in some shape or form, um, I think can go some way to assuaging, you know, the concerns and the issues and the angst that you might have as you understand, learn more and read more. That's one thing. I think the second thing is that you can't, you know, you can't keep a lid on it. So you might be able to for a period of time. I mean, lots of people are, you know, and, and pretending it's not going to happen or pretending, you know, it's not their job or whatever else. But, you know, would you rather know that now and begin to think about what you want to do about it, or would you like rather put it off and then open that box or be for, or have that box, you know, open for you in ten, twenty years' time, rather like I have actually in the last few years, and think, how how was I so blind? How was I so blind? And you mm. can't rule that. You don't have that time back again. Mm. For sure, yeah. It's but uh, heard an expression quite recently, which is um, which I hadn't hadn't heard before. I'm surprised. It's either make time for to to look after yourself and be healthy now, or make time to be to be sick in the future. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's exactly that same type of you know philosophy mm. where you need to be looking after the world now, or we'll be dealing with some major issues in the in the future. Mm. Moving on, actually moving back slightly. Um, Collaboration has been a you know major theme of our of our conversation mm -hmm. so far, and um, how you've been kind of trying to create these little little pockets and little effects of people people talking and um, uh, fusing off against each other. And you, you mentioned in uh, some, some in an article um, you wrote about the you know the butterfly effects mm -hmm. that you were you were seeing um, from the, the the conversation they were having around uh, your your walk to twenty six. Um, do you have any kind of little anecdotes and things that you know that effects you might have seen kind of tr trickle down <coughs> over the last year from from those type of chance encounters? Well, first of all, I think the butterfly effect is just the most lovely metaphor. You know, I just think it's and if you're an optimist, you know, you reach for that and you, you put a lot of faith in it. <laughs> That's one thing. 
by definition, it's quite difficult to understand what happens, you know, after the ripple and the, you know, or whatever else it is that the, the other side of the world, what, what happens. But there's certainly some little bits and pieces. And I, and I suppose one would be, um, so somebody um, was put in touch with me because they were looking for a job in the UK in around sustainability and climate change. So we engaged. Um, she ended up walking with us on COP26. Um, she happens to come from Lebanon. So then she helped me then develop the working group in Lebanon uh, for Watch COP27. Um, separately, somebody I met in Turkey as part of Watch COP27 introduced me to something called uh, Women in Renewable Energy, which is a Canadian-based organization going worldwide, all around, obviously, Women in Renewable Energy and skills and related skills. Um, and then through this lady, this Lebanese person's involvement in what's COP27 she got to know them and now she's starting a UK chapter for wind and renewable energy and and I just sort of thought yeah in a very small way you know if I if if what we'd done is sort of managed to create a few of those connections and you know just leave it to people to sort of for things to happen that's exactly what we're hoping is going to happen and that's so that, that's a small example, but you know there, there are other bits and pieces. So, so I think it was yesterday um, that um, we had a clubhouse session as part of Water Cop Twenty Seven. So basically, Turkey were talking about something. Somebody in another country heard them talking about it and have asked them for professional training. And um, and it was just sort of you know it's a combination of serendipity, or it's, it's just trying to create the platform to allow those things to to, to foster. And, you know, things like, and this is where we come back to the social media you asked earlier, you know, connecting people. So for people, particularly people who have, don't have much experience, to go out and make connections on social media is actually quite difficult because, you know, people don't want them because they don't have any followers or whatever else it is or they don't, you know, why is this person trying to become part of my, you know. But once you've met those people, of course, and then you reach out to them on the platform, it's very different. So trying to create those opportunities for young people or for anybody else for that matter to, to meet others and then have the opportunity to follow up on the social media platforms, I think is, is a part of helping that butterfly effect, that serendipity, that network of connections, actions and activities that, that you can't necessarily see directly, but you're pretty sure are happening. Brilliant. And there have been some great conversations going on within the clubhouse. Um, what have you particularly learned from them? Anything that's, that's surprised you? Anything you, oh, I didn't know that, that, that came up from these conversations? You know, it's difficult not to be, I mean, humble is sort of, it's a strange thing because it almost by saying humble, you're not being humble. You know, it's a sort of weird word, but I'm humbled as you see on the social media. But, but it is difficult not to feel humbled when, um, for instance, we had a 16-year-old Pakistani girl talking about the issues in Pakistan and talking about the voice of women and girls and the impact on women and girls and the voice of women and girls in climate discussions. And to listen to it, it was such a privilege to hear her with her passion and her hurt and her, you know, it was so inspiring and it was so moving. It was, it was fantastic. Um, and I wish, and I, I mean, that's all on replay so people can listen to it. Um, but it was, yeah, it was intensely moving. So, so was that sort of learning something per se? I don't know, but it was, it was moving. It was phenomenal. Um, there's some technical things I've learned. I didn't really know anything about Passive House. I know quite a lot about Passive House as a lay person. So there's sort of technical stuff. Um, I think if you put the town halls and the clubhouse together, though, and these interactions with lots of people, I think the three things which have, have 
come out, which, which again, are areas I didn't necessarily fully appreciate or understand. And one is um, the desire for people to vocalize the need to change the system. And it might start with a activist who we've invited or particularly a youth activist, but then people agree and people in business agree or people in business associations agree or somebody in the local government agrees. And, and it all, it, it, it's vocalized in many different ways, but in general, it's that concept of, you know, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet or, you know, you can't pursue growth at the cost of all else, you know, whatever variation on a theme. But the bottom line is that the obsession with growth and particularly when the, the growth is measured through consumption or a proxy for consumption is not commensurate with a sustainable future. So that has surprised me that that's come through so frequently and so often. Well, well, tell us a little bit more about your feelings on this and kind of on, on the role of business activism and, and the whole degrowth, the yeah. idea of degrowth and you know, the, the constraints we have in a, natural, in, a, in, a, in a finite planet we live on. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think it's easier to point at what's wrong than what we, to, to how to construct the, the future. And I think it is evident that, yeah, it is evident exactly as I just said, really, that... that having one of the most important goals expressed as an a an output number which is you know as i said a proxy for consumption which is um doesn't talk about distribution you know it can't be it can't be right and when that then the system is not only is that at a governmental level it's seen as important but when that then gets translated into a system which large and powerful organizations are then trying to drive increased consumption without any even understanding let alone concern about the broader impacts on society and, and the economy that they might be having it becomes very dangerous dangerous to us all in the medium longer term and i think so those things are easy to point at what what shouldn't really happen i think there's another very interesting debate which is sometimes used to counter the ESG and sort of, you know, responsible business discussion, which is saying, you know, do you want unelected bodies to be pushing a social and environmental agenda because they haven't been elected? So what, you know, what's their role? And so too often that's used actually as a counter to, you know, business feeling responsible. Um, it shouldn't be. Of course they should be thinking about social environmental challenges and issues, but they should be doing it within a policy framework, which is, you know, well understood and... um and robust so so my view is that yeah we have found ourselves in a place that we don't really want to be and you can look at that either in terms of you know all the climate change stuff that we've just been talking about or you can look at it the you know the mental health of our children that we can keep getting told about or we can you know look at what we've got in our homes and you know why have we got that stuff in our homes you know what which of those you know gave us lasting happiness or fulfillment so so i think we sort of know somehow what might have been a tremendous mission initially has lost its direction and resulted in unintended and negative consequences um i think if there were you know at a time of of, of poverty when you know there is base need and you need you know economic opportunity to address some of that need it's a much more clear-cut, you know, discussion and argument for a more naked form of capitalism. Um, 
and we can certainly point to you know to much progress in many countries um on that basis but I think once you get, you know, it keeps getting talked about. Sort of once you get to a certain level of income, you don't see the gains in happiness and fulfillment thereafter. You know, it's up to a certain level. And that level is incredibly low when you compare it to the incomes in the US and the UK and, and you know, developed and in inverted commas nations. So, so I think anyway, to summarize, I can point very clearly in my own mind to what I think is is wrong and inappropriate. How you then sort of reconstruct that because I think that the what I can sense is that what people are terrified of is chaos so they don't want to go from something they recognize is is hugely compromised to chaos that would be worse they do want a safe way of sort of transitioning to something different and at the moment we've got a lot of people thinking about you know degrowth and you've got a lot of different um, if you like points of view in politics around what we should or shouldn't do but I don't think we have a enough of a blueprint to give confidence to the people who are sitting in there in their incumbent situations and businesses, um, and it's too easy for them to say, "Well, you know, th that way is chaos," and so I'll just carry on doing what I'm doing, even though I know it's compromised. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also the um, the the global issue of degrowth as well, where you've got some countries that have grown. You know, massively, and other countries that still have got you know a large amount of GDP development that needs to be done to to raise people out of poverty. It's um, you know extremely it's it's a thorny issue to say the least. Um, but when you kind of you move from your town halls from like France to Hungary to Turkey to Jordan, um, how does the conversation evolve? How does, how does it differ? How are you? Are, are people talking about the same issues, different issues aside from carbon? Look, we we'll just kind of park carbon. We know we know people talk about carbon, but everything else in around the, the climate transition. So one of the surprises was so our French town hall came out pretty much, so the last question I try and ask is always sort of what single thing, you know, if you had the magic wand, what single thing would you ask for in order to, you know, increase the speed, the scale and the impact of, of, of the transformation we need. And in France, it got to education. So basically everybody, I mean, nobody would say that education is a bad thing, but whether or not you put that as a priority, because in my mind, I'm thinking education, it takes a period, you know, generations to work through, you know, the person who's educated then has to act or whatever else. But to a person... Um, they ended up saying education was the most important. And not necessarily education of kids, because the, the sort of corollary point was made is actually education of, you know, adults and, you know, and older and sort of working people and older than, than working and retired people um, to change their minds and their activities and behaviours and the way they vote. So that was a huge difference because I think in the UK, whether that was Scotland or England, there was a combination of sort of policy and you know organizational action and you know reasonably technical approaches to yeah we're doing this we're doing that we've got a sort of solution for this we need to scale it we need policy all that sort of talk whereas in, in france step back education which i thought was absolutely fascinating um i mean the, clearly the contexts do change um you know we've talked about the um the energy crisis and and that, that is obviously impacting some of these countries very, very differently. Um, I think also the strength of the grassroots or the NGO sector differs. Um, and sometimes that's seen as, you know, very powerful and a, a really exciting voice. And sometimes it's, feel, it's seen as, as less mature and more evolving. 
Um, and it's quite evident because you go into the country and you ask around, you know, who knows who, and you quickly sort of bump into the same names. Whereas in some other countries, it's you, you know, it's like being in London asking about a medium-sized business. You know, there's just so much on offer. So, so yeah, it it changed. It's sort of changed and, and moved around and subtly, and perhaps also my selection of speakers obviously influences that. But you know, people are facing very different issues, and so I'm looking forward to the ones that we've got coming up in the Middle East because in Turkey we're going to be talking about agriculture. So in the east of Turkey, there's been uh, apparently a lot of challenge around desertification, agriculture, and, and you know changes in how agriculture needs to be done in order to, to, to keep yield up. So that's going to be super interesting. In Jordan, the focus is on water. Um, and then in Lebanon, the focus is on uh, community energy because they can't really rely on the grid, so they've got to create the, you know, more of a community energy type approach. So, so, so there are big, big differences. What, what's interesting, there's almost the... Once you get into talking about climate change and resolutions, what's being done, it does feel a little bit more similar than you know the context really are. So it's the conversations before and after where somebody goes, oh, we just had another blackout or, you know, I can't afford to drive into town anymore, so I'm going to only do it on Fridays or something like that. Then, then you realise how very different these contexts are. Yeah, and speaking of education, um, you, you also mentioned earlier on that you went into schools during your your, your walk to uh, 26. Um, what, did you, what did you take most from the, those experiences of being in and talking to those young people? So I think, first of all, there was um, abiding interest and curiosity in the topic overall. Um, it's clear that it's not, you know, they have been taught and you know so so the concepts aren't foreign so they're it's clear they want to continue to talk about it and debate and discuss it um it's also almost always you know there's a small number of people who are absolutely on it you know the sort of the mini gretas or whatever um which i think is a good and a bad thing because it's a sad thing that it tends to be a small number of people it's a great thing they've got the courage to stand up and and stand out um it's a a sad thing they have to (laughs) It is, it is. When we mixed up the, you know, students with, with the adults, the adults always behave when the, 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 the younger people are around, as long as the younger people like give, you know, have voice. So that was fantastic to see adults all suddenly listening and, you know, leaning forward as opposed to pontificating, as we're all, you know, prone to. Um, but I think the sort of... It was the genuine... It was the directness, I think, of the questioning and the commentary, which I think was so refreshing. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't asking because they were, they had a reason or a backstory or whatever else. It was just a direct question, why this or why that or how, you know, should I, somebody asked, should, you know, I want to do a campaign on whatever it was, but I'm worried about the, you know, the missions content of the posters I stick on the wall. It was just a great, simple question. Um, and, it, and generosity of spirit as well. So there was the thing that, you know, admittedly I'd spent the whole day walking with shin splints and I was cold, tired and wet. And, you know, but the thing that, that almost made me cry in Scotland was um, somebody staying. So there was a group of little girls who'd stay behind to ask questions. And then just the fact they stayed behind was already emotional. It was like, oh my God, you know, they actually want to ask us more questions. I can't believe it. So that was exciting. And then one little girl put her hand up and said, um, it's not a question. I want to thank i just want to say thank you for coming to see us and and saying what you did and you know the three of us on stage were just like sort of you know sort of, it was amazing so anyway there's so you know, there was it was so rich the interaction we didn't have, we didn't do enough interacting with schools it's it's um 
as anybody who does that, you know, there's sort of, it's not quite as easy as say, interacting with the corporate or with universities, um, but so rewarding, so rewarding. I think this, that may partially answer uh, the next question, but uh, like your LinkedIn profile, um, you're wearing a T-shirt that says optimistic, uh, stubborn climate activist. Um, how do you stay optimistic and stubborn? Um, so obviously that's, so that T-shirt actually apparently was, so it was distributed COP26 in the Strathclyde Union by somebody who claimed that they were printed in 2015 by Christiana Figueres, so, um, or, or by her, her team. So I don't know if it's true or not, but anyway, I grabbed one. So it's not quite, it doesn't quite fit me. But anyway, fantastic T-shirt, it's my favourite. Um, so I think it's tricky because, um, and it comes back to this sort of two bits of, you don't want to immerse yourself in the minutiae of your life and forget everything else because that can make you feel okay in the face of it, but, you know, and you don't want to spend... At the same time, you don't want to immerse yourself in, you know, the big challenges and staring at the emissions, rising in emissions, et cetera, over here as well and read the IPC reports every morning. Um, so so part of it, I think, is trying to create a blend of the two to allow you to live your life and allow you to do normal stuff and yet to do that within the context of this challenge. I think that's part of it. But the second thing is this thing over here is so big, it's so fundamental that... You know, you do have to feel you're doing something which in some way contributes or at least doesn't have a negative consequence. And so that's what I'm casting around trying to do. And and then meeting all these other people who are also trying to do that, who are also, you know, dedicated and committed to what they're doing, that gives me optimism and that gives me, you know, strength of purpose and inspires me. Fantastic. Uh, will there be a walk to COP28? So what, with this COP27, we, we started organising pretty much immediately after COP26. I think that the, if I go back to France saying education is required, I think there is a huge amount of education required in this country and in every country we've touched on. Um, and it's not necessarily, you know, the facts, the figures, the fact that, you know, climate change exists or whatever else, but it's enough understanding of the implications and the segues into other particular you know challenges all the things that we've talked about you know things like um you know degrowth and con you know consumerism etc that you know i certainly haven't managed to sort of box or you know or put all together in a very sort of cohesive uh, uh, narrative and i'm quite sure that many many others haven't either and so if i put together the facts that, that I've been studying and spending a lot of time doing my reading and trying to understand everything over the last few years, and I'm still not quite there. I'm still not, so I shouldn't say quite that. I'm still not there. Together with the fact that I'm being told by all sorts of different people that education is still crucially important, important and I can see it, I'm thinking probably the next step for me is actually to get involved in some of these really interesting um I don't know what you call them, sort of organisations or collectives which are driving different types of climate education. So there's a climate reality um, project by, that Al Gore set up. So there's a network of people with a specific sort of narrative, which is huge, and I bumped into that in Turkey. So that's something I'm going to pursue. There's something called Climate Fresk, which was started in France, which is a sort of climate game which you can take to companies or organisations or even schools, and there's sort of different levels of it, um, which again is a sort of three-hour setting where you 
try and get people to challenge and question whatever. So I'm going to, I think my next step is probably to explore that um, in my quest to try and find the, you know, the way to best contribute. And it won't be only that. And I will keep the possibility of Walk to COP28 alive. Is it too late to get involved in Walk to COP27? So not it obviously depends when people listen to this, yeah, but not yeah. not at all. So, so Water Cop Twenty Seven runs officially until the seventh of November. Um, there's a number of different ways to get involved. So the first one is to well, first of all, if you get on the website watercop27.com um, under participate, you can register, and that means you register on the app and you log your distance, and we translate that into trees, and we'll plant those trees through Jane Goodall in Burundi as a result of the kilometres walked. So that's one thing, join as an individual, join as part of a team. The second thing is to attend the town halls. So come, listen, engage, ask questions and challenge as, as we hear these fascinating town halls yet to come. The third is a clubhouse you mentioned. So there's still, I don't know, 10 to 15 sessions on clubhouse to listen to. Um, so that's another another way of engaging. And then the fourth is really on just on social media, get engaged in the conversation and look out for us on hashtag watercup27 um, and you know, we're very happy to amplify your good stories or, um, you know, amplify ours to allow you to us to amplify yours better. It doesn't really matter, you know, which way. So, yes, still an opportunity. Fantastic. And if you were going to give, I don't know, it might be a difficult thing to do, but like a one-line pitch, why would, if someone here is considering getting involved, give us a sentence or two on why they should. One-line pitch. Yeah, yeah you, can, um, you can go to two if you need. <laughs> so I think... As an individual, you know, we are all walking or running or cycling or traveling in a wheelchair, you know, in our daily lives. So translate that into something which results in trees planted in an important part of the world, which has suffered significantly from climate change. Yeah. But more importantly, feel part of this big collective on the way to COP27. So join us in order to feel part of a collective, feel that solidarity but also to turn what you do anyway into benefit or other people's benefit. And finally, just by, by way of uh, kind of wrapping up, um, you've clearly taken like an enormous step in step in your life uh, from, you know, from, from the past to, to the present. If there's other people considering, you know, dedicating their, their careers, uh, their kind of professional lives, their time, their money into um, being an activist, being more involved, how, what advice could you could you give them? What, what do they need to think about, and how do they how how what will be facing them? Yeah, so I think first of all, I'd be delighted to speak to them. That's that's one thing. Um, but I think that yeah, there there are many many people I've encountered seeking exactly that. You know, which is, you know, do I build on what I've done in the past? Do I do something different? Do I, you know, how should I address and and, and approach this? Um, so I think that the you know, like, like looking for any job. I mean, you've got to think about, I think, you know, some of the basic requirements that you, you can't have your cake and eat it, basically. You can't, you know, have the most money, the most, you know, short-term X, you know, as well as save the world, as well as this, as well as that. So I think there's a there's a sense of, you know, a set of criteria that you need to write up. I think, first of all, it very much depends on what stage of your career you are and what stage of your life, obviously. Um, you know, I think it's very important to think about what you can do and your network, but also what you're motivated by. And I think a lot of people in perhaps more traditional, you know, professional careers haven't had the time 
necessarily to think about what motivates them and what they're or or what they're necessarily good at. You know, they've been good at their job. That doesn't mean to say that's the best thing that they could possibly do. So we shouldn't just think, okay, I've done, you know, whatever it is, you know, a thousand business plan inspections. And so therefore I should find a way of doing that, you know, but in a green way. Actually, I might do something completely different. It might be something more creative. You know, it, it's a it's a really interesting and fascinating, obviously, opportunity for everybody to step back and think about, you know, the motivation, the capability and the opportunity they have um, and try and put those together um, and then take a step. And I think there's there's something else about this. So first of all, don't do it in isolation. So talk to lots of people, and most people do. But the second thing, is is do take a step of some shape or form because i think what i've found is you know as you're sitting in a particular situation and that might be an organizational construct you might be able to see two three steps you know away left right center straight on whatever if you then take one or two steps you then see a different set of you know two or three steps in a slightly different direction in a different way so by making a move you will change and you'll change the things that you think you can do and what you can do so I would advocate change at all costs. And then the question is, is what does that look like? And you know, how far, how quickly, how whatever. But do it now, don't wait. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sam. That was, that was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. The series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.